The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 3. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we are devoting the entire evening to Plato. Last week I presented the essence and the base of his metaphysics, but not yet the climax of it. To say nothing of the rest of his philosophy, his epistemology, psychology, ethics, politics. That is our assignment this evening. Now as to the climax of Plato's metaphysics, I promised you last week that we would begin this evening with an excursion into the world of forms to find out something about its content and structure. Well, the otherworldly trip is about to begin. Let us now leave this world and ascend to the world of forms <coughs> for a few minutes and find out something about the characteristics of true reality. The first thing to know is that the forms, according to Plato, are not a disconnected grab bag of universals. It's not as though you simply have a motley collection of bananas, subwayhood, justice, etc., without interrelationships. The fact is the forms are all logically related to each other by various logical relationships. They are bound together into one integrated system. And indeed, says Plato, every scientific law, every mathematical theorem, is merely a statement of how certain specific forms are logically interconnected. If I say, for instance, the sum of the angles of a triangle are 180 degrees, that is not a statement about any one particular triangle. It is a statement about triangularity, triangularity as such. And it says that tri triangularity as such is intrinsically connected with a 180-degree hood. That that is a logical tie that's unavoidable. Or if I say all men are mortal, again, I am talking about man as such, and I am saying manness by its very nature entails mortality as such. And so for any universal law or principle we can state. Sciences, therefore, are really, for Plato, attempts to discover the structure of the world of forms attempts to show the order or organization or connection uniting the various forms. How do the sciences do it? Well, each science, says Plato, starts with certain basic premises. Certain basic statements of how the forms in its particular field are related. And it then proceeds to deduce a whole host of consequences from these basic premises. Each science, in this sense, is a description of the structure of some part of the world of forms. This is obvious in the case of mathematics. It starts with certain premises and then deduces its consequence. It's true of ethics. You must start somewhere with some basic premises and then deduce your whole system. It's true of physics. Whatever theory of physics you have, it begins somewhere with your physical axioms and then deduces the consequences. In other words, every individual science assumes certain relationships among certain forms and then deduces the consequences. Now, says Plato, this poses a problem. And that is that unless we can validate the basic premises in each science, all our knowledge remains hypothetical. All of our science is reduced to the level of assumption. 
It's on the order, if the premises are true, then everything we deduce from it is true, but how do we know the premises are true? We need in each field, therefore, true axioms, which means, says Plato, we need some foundation point from which we can deduce the axioms of the various individual sciences. Now, he says, in effect, just imagine that you could find one fundamental form, one, which was such that it was self-intelligible <coughs> or self-luminous. In other words, you need no explanation of it, you need no proof of it. Once you grasp it, once you simply mentally come in contact with it, by that act you understand what it is and why it must exist. And now suppose, says Plato, that having grasped this one form, we could see that absolutely everything else followed from it. We could deduce from it all of the axioms of all of the individual sciences. Well, says Plato, if we could do that, we would have put every science on absolutely firm ground. And in addition, we would have achieved a marvelous result of intellectual unity. Instead of having psychologists talk their language and moralists talk theirs and physicists talk theirs all in a splintered, unconnected, disintegrated and often contradictory form, we would have tied all the areas of human knowledge together into one whole by deducing the basis of each separate science from one fundamental principle. We would, after all, says Plato, we live in one integrated universe there must therefore be one ultimate principle from which everything else follows. Well, of course, it's crucial to find this. So we are embarked again on a quest for the one in the many. But now the whole quest is transferred to the world of forms. We are looking for the one supreme form uniting the many forms. Of course, Plato believed there was one such form the ultimate axiom from which everything else follows, indeed from which if you grasp it, you are truly omniscient because you grasp all the other forms. And since this world is simply the reflection in space of the other world of forms, you would therefore, insofar as this world is intelligible at all, have understood everything there is to know about it. You would in a world have explained the total of existence on every level if you grasp this form. Plato's reality can therefore be analogically compared to a pyramid. And what we are looking for now is the apex, the climax, the jackpot, the ultimate key to reality. Now, of course, Plato gives no argument to prove that the supreme form must be single in nature, that there must be only one. On this point, he is simply reflecting the monism which was characteristic of most of Greek philosophy. It's uh, another reflection of the Greek desire to reduce the many to the one, here, of course, in an otherworldly form. Well, what could the nature of this fundamental form be? Well, we know it is to explain the entire universe. It's to be the explanation of everything. That raises the question, what do you take as an explanation? And Plato has a firm answer to that question. Plato is a thorough teleologist. 
Now you remember that I defined teleology as the view that purpose is operative somewhere in the universe and perhaps in the universe as a whole. There are various forms of teleology. Uh, and it is contrasted with mechanism, the view that everything happens by mechanical law devoid of purpose, a la the atomist viewpoint. Well, Plato is a teleologist, a universal teleologist. Uh, he believes that every event in the universe has to be explained in terms of the purpose it serves. In terms of something the events of the world are striving to accomplish. In terms of goals, of ends, of a good of some kind that everything is aiming at. Plato regards the atomists as completely wrong in their concept of what constitutes an explanation. The atomists, he says, at best tell us how things happen. They tell us that under these circumstances, this is the way the particles of matter jostle. These are the descriptive laws that characterize the actual behavior of the physical world. The atomists tell us how. They simply describe, says Plato. Then that's true of any mechanist, he says. If we want to know why and not just how, if we want explanation and not just description, it must be in terms of purpose. And purpose means some good that everything is aiming at. Now on the human level, this is obvious. If Bobby Fischer makes a move at chess, no amount of mechanistic explanation will explain it. You can talk about the quivering of his cortex till you're blue in the face, you will not capture the reason he made that move as apart from his motive, the goal he was aiming at, namely to defeat Spassky. Now Plato adopts this pattern of explanation for the entire universe. That of course is an unjustified overgeneralization, but he does it nevertheless. As he sees it, the alternative is atomistic mechanism across the board or teleology across the board, and he takes the latter. Consequently, he calls the ultimate form the form of the good, since the good is that which everything is aiming at. Of course, another word for it is goodness, and therefore the expression goodness gracious is pure Platonism. <laughs> now, what are the functions of the form of the good? It has two fundamental functions in Plato, one metaphysical, one epistemological. Metaphysically, it is the purpose of all of existence, the purpose of the universe. Epistemologically, it is the single axiom of all knowledge. Metaphysically, to restate, it is the source of existence. It's what makes all of reality possible. Now, on a teleological model of the universe, obviously, if you remove the purpose, you would remove everything which exists to serve the purpose. If uh, Fisher did not have any purpose, he would not play the chess game. It couldn't exist. Well, similarly, if you hold that the entire universe exists to serve a purpose, if you remove the purpose, the whole universe would vanish. In that sense of the term, the form of the good for Plato is the source of all existence. And, of course, epistemologically as a result, it is the source of all intelligibility. It's what makes anything understandable because it's the thing which leads to the axioms of the sciences and all the way down. 
Short of reaching the form of the good intellectually, reality remains a mystery to us. We simply wouldn't understand why. Now, in this respect, the form of the good performs for Plato a function enormously similar to the function that God performed for later Christian philosophy on both points. God for Christianity is the source of reality and the ultimate source of intelligibility. Uh, until you grasp him and, in Christian terms, his plan, you simply cannot make any sense out of the universe. In this respect, Christianity took over entirely Plato's view. But Plato's form of the good is not yet itself a god. It is, remember, a universal, impersonal, unconscious. It is simply abstract, universal goodness. It has no plan, no will, no awareness. It just exists in the world of forms, and everything strives for it. To get God out of Plato's form of the good, you, in effect, have to do two things. Drop an O and add a personality, which was very shortly done. Now, Plato himself compares the form of the good in an analogy only to the sun, that is S-U-N, not Jesus. Because he says the sun, in a certain sense, enables everything to exist on earth, at least it enables living things to exist by providing the heat and the light uh, sustenance that is required, otherwise the earth would turn cold and die. And in that loose analogical sense, it enables the earth to exist. And epistemologically, the sun makes everything visible. This is in the age prior to uh, Thomas Edison. And if without it, the whole world would be black, and no one could have any awareness of it. <clears throat> well, in that same sense, the form of the good now has these two functions applied to the entire universe. Well, and if you ask me, what is it? If it is this vital, uh, the most urgent philosophic question will be, what is the good? We have to know it to understand anything, to make the universe intelligible? Well, what is Plato's answer to the question, what is the nature of the good? What is the ultimate purpose of everything? Unfortunately, I can't tell you. I can't tell you because Plato held very strongly the view that his deepest thoughts should not be put in writing. He held uh, that the form of the good is ineffable. Ineffable is a technical philosophic term, meaning outside the power of human conceptualization, beyond human language, logic, discussion, concepts. To grasp the form of the good, you do not do any intellectualizing. You must simply transcend the intellect and have an intuition or a vision. A vision which, when you have it, is completely blindingly self-illuminating, and which, if you don't have it, there is nothing anyone can say to you. To those who understand, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not understand, no explanation is possible. In either case, we don't explain. <laughs> now, this, of course, is mysticism, technical mysticism. Mysticism being the view that knowledge is obtainable by means other than reason or the senses. 
And in this respect, Plato is the father of Western mysticism in Western philosophy. You will see the extent of his following as the course proceeds if you don't already know it. Now I should say that uh, Plato himself believed that there was a definite course of action you should take to have this special vision. Uh, although he couldn't tell you what the vision was like, he could tell you the necessary steps to attaining it. And he outlines them in detail. It amounts to a rigorous period of mathematical training, essentially mathematical stretching across decades, and becoming progressively more abstract. Plato felt that mathematics was very valuable because the more you engage in higher mathematics, the more tenuous your tie to the physical world becomes, in his opinion. And at a certain point, you cut your ties altogether. And at that point, you are free to go on to the form of the good. And you see, of course, therefore, the mathematical influence of the Pythagorean mathematical mysticism on Plato. Well, to sum up then Plato's metaphysics, there is a world of forms presided over by the form of the good, all of it reflected into space, thereby generating this half-real reflection that we call the physical world. And uh, if we're not Platonists, we mistakenly call it reality. Now let us turn more systematically to Plato's epistemology. Now I said last week that one main purpose of Plato's whole philosophy was to answer the sophists, to show that objective knowledge is possible. But here we immediately have a question. How can we ever come to know the forms? After all, they constitute a completely different world, a non-material world, and as such, not in space, not in time. And yet here are we on Earth, limited by our bodies and our senses. How are we ever to come in contact with them? Well, of course, Plato answers by thought. But uh, the question is, how does thought down here ever come in contact with the forms up there? And of course, up and down are here simply metaphors because the forms aren't anywhere. They're not special. Well, the answer to this we have already actually touched on last week. We proved, at least in Plato's opinion last week, <coughs> that we must have been in contact with the world of forms prior to this life. We must have lived in the world of forms in a preceding life. And Plato uh, believes that he's proved that, and therefore adopts intact the whole orthic Pythagorean view with the wheel of birth, successive reincarnations, and the ultimate goal being escape. But in any event, our souls knew all the forms, and therefore all the laws, and therefore was actually omniscient prior to its birth in this world. <coughs> when, however, it was immersed in the body and thrust into the Heraclitian flux, it had what modern psychologists would call a birth trauma. And the effect of that is the soul forgot all the things that it knew. Uh, put in modern terms, all that knowledge descended into the unconscious. But it is still there. It is still in us. It's still real. What we call acquiring knowledge, says Plato, is really not acquiring new knowledge at all. It simply is a process of digging out from your subconscious or unconscious what is really already there. Knowledge is a process of remembering, of reminiscence. And this is Plato's famous theory of knowledge as reminiscence. Um, 
uh, and it's in Greek, uh, the theory of anamnesis, A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S, anamnesis simply means reminiscence. Therefore, for Plato, there is definitely innate knowledge, knowledge of reality born in us. The senses, the physical senses, are not means of getting new knowledge of reality. What then is their function? Does Plato believe that if you took a young baby and gouged out his eyes and pierced his ears and generally mutilated his senses, uh, he would then be able to go along merrily and still remember the forms? No. Plato says, yes, we definitely need the senses in the early stages of knowledge. Not to teach us something new, however, but to serve as a stimulus to jog our memories. The best analogy you can think of, the one I was taught when I was first taught Plato, is uh, imagine that uh, uh, you, 20 or 30 or 40 years after you have left college, you come across an old faded yearbook with pictures of your classmates, and your grandson is busy jostling it back and forth, so you get only a fleeting glimpse of a faded photograph. Now, if you didn't know the man uh, in the photograph uh, from 20, 30, 40 years back, you'd never get anything from that little stimulus. But given that you knew the man well, even if you have forgotten him completely, that uh, corrupt, imperfect, flickering stimulus is enough to remind you and you say, oh yes, Jones, I remember him, I haven't thought of him for years. Well, for Plato, in essence, that's true of all knowledge. You see a few horses and you say, ah, yes, hoarseness, now it comes back to me. <laughs> but uh, after an initial period of thus stimulating your uh, memories, knowledge thereafter is a matter of looking inward, not of looking outward. It is a matter of turning away from the world of introspection because we have in us all the basic truths and laws and concepts, and what we do is simply look in, find them, and proceed to deduce their consequences logically, quite apart from any further sensory observation. Now, this view of knowledge, as you know, is called rationalism. But now, with Plato, we have a fully worked out answer to the question you asked several times before, how does reason operate if it doesn't base itself on sensory data? Heraclitus and Parmenides and those early figures were rationalists, but if you had asked them that question, they have no answer. Plato has an answer. His answer is reason is capable of acquiring knowledge apart from the senses because we are born with innate ideas. Now, from the time of Plato on, rationalism therefore acquires a fuller definition. It becomes the epistemological theory that knowledge is acquirable solely by reasoning from innate concepts and that sense perception is in principle dispensable. Except, of course, as a stimulus. It's called rationalism, of course, because Plato called the faculty which studied universals reason. It's the idea that reason alone can give you knowledge apart from the senses. Now, uh, I should say for accuracy that this definition of rationalism holds true descriptively of philosophers in this camp up to the 18th century. Kant introduced 
in the 18th century a quite different version of rationalism. A variation on Plato, but nevertheless a significantly different one. And rationalism from the 18th century to the present is quite different and does not believe in innate ideas. But that's not the subject of this course. Now, what proof does Plato offer of innate ideas? Well, in general, there is only one argument in favor of innate ideas, and then it's simply a matter of all of the various forms of it. The general argument for innate ideas raised by Platonists from Greece to the present is, we have a certain type of knowledge that we could not have acquired from sensory observation. But we have it. Therefore, it must have been acquired from somewhere else. We must have got it from some means apart from the senses. We must have been born with it. It must be innate. And then the various sub-arguments under this are simply specifications of the types of knowledge which various philosophers feel could not have been acquired from experience. For instance, Plato himself mentions the knowledge of perfection. Remember our argument two last week. Or he mentions the argument from the order of knowledge, from man's ability to define and classify, which in his opinion, remember, presupposes that we knew universals prior to this life that we couldn't have acquired them from sensory particulars. <coughs> and he gives us several other equivalent arguments. One famous, although very weak one, is uh, given in a dialogue called the Meno, M-E-N-O, in which Socrates says to a man who owns a slave, bring your slave boy in, and uh, I, uh, this boy is completely uneducated, and I will show you that he possesses knowledge of complex geometric theorems that no one has ever taught him. I will simply elicit them from him by judicious questioning. And you watch and see, I am not going to tell him anything, I'm simply going to question him. And sure enough, Socrates, by a series of questions, without uh, nothing in the declarative form, everything interrogative, the boy at the end comes out with a complex geometric theorem. And Socrates draws the moral, you see, he had it in him all the time, he just needed to be reminded of it. Needless to say, critics for centuries have said Socrates was feeding him information right and left, and doing it in the form of questions. Uh, it's not as crude as the following, but what it amounts to is, don't you see that the angle sum of a triangle is 180 degrees? And the slave boy says, yes, you see. So uh, that is not very convincing, but famous, and nevertheless. Does Plato offer any proof of the immortality of the soul, which is an essential ingredient of this theory? Well, in the dialogue, the Phaedo, P-H-A-E-D-O, he gives four famous proofs for the immortality of the soul. I mentioned one of them uh, last week. That was implied in the second and third arguments that I gave you that the soul must have existed prior to the body. And that, in essence, is a proof of the immortality of the soul, if it were valid. Because if it could exist prior, it could just as well exist after the body, because the essential point in an immortality argument is to prove the independence of the soul from the body, and Plato would have done that. He gives three others in the Phaedo. Uh, they are very poor arguments, and I will not take your time discussing them. If you're interested, I'll be happy to tell you in the question period. In any case, he is convinced to his satisfaction that he has established the existence of innate ideas, and this becomes a challenge to Aristotle to explain, if he can, how is all knowledge possible, assuming man is born with, without innate ideas, and Aristotle accepts that challenge and proceeds to define 
for every category of knowledge which Plato said we couldn't get from experience, how you get it from experience, and we'll see when we get to Aristotle next week. Now let us continue with Plato's epistemology. Let me give you some detail on the steps you have to go through to recollect and reawaken all of your knowledge. You must, says Plato, pass through four stages on the road from ignorance to complete mastery of the entire universe. Now I must amend that there is no real ignorance, but ignorance in quotes, the ignorance of a baby who doesn't remember anything. He illustrates this by a famous divided line which has four segments and you travel up the line, and this is called Plato's theory of the divided line, but the line is not too important for us. What's important are the four stages. The first stage he calls the stage of imagining. This is the stage in which you are wholly ignorant, confused, and unenlightened. Uh, as far as cognition is concerned, you take all superficial appearances at face value. You are like, in effect, a baby. Or you are a baby. This is the stage that babies, according to Plato, begin at. Uh, you do not distinguish in this stage between dreams and physical things. If you dream that somebody hits you, you wake up mad at them because you take the dream and the physical thing as interchangeable. You look in a mirror and you see an image or reflection or shadow of yourself and you think it's another person. You do not to tell, you can't even tell the distinction between images and physical things. In other words, you are simply being bombarded with an unidentified stream of sensations. Morally, the moral counterpart of this first level of imagining, you accept anything that you want, any desire, utterly unthinking. So this would represent, in effect, the moral mentality of an animal, which simply desires and goes out and gets what it wants without any questions of right or wrong, or of a sophist who does the same thing as a matter of philosophic principle. This is the lowest mentality there is. Now we move to the second stage, which is what Plato calls the stage of belief or also the stage of opinion. Now by this time, you've grown some years, <coughs> you have learned to distinguish some facts in regard to the physical world. You can now tell the difference between fact and fancy, between physical objects on the one hand and dreams or images on the other. And you've even risen to the level where you've made a variety of scattered empirical observations and some crude, approximate, rough generalizations on the order of empirical rules of thumb. Now, of course, at this stage, you do not know why any of these facts or generalizations hold true. And therefore, you have no capacity to be certain that they will continue to hold true. For instance, you've observed that if you follow any given man around long enough, he drops dead. But you have no idea why all men are mortal. That just happens to be a brute observation. Or if you went in for specializing in triangles, you kept measuring them and their angles, some kept coming out to be 180. But uh, as far as you know, the next one might be 179 or 250, who knows? So you have a certain degree of probability here, but not true knowledge. And that is why Plato calls this the stage of belief. You believe certain things, but you don't yet know them. And of course, there's other reasons why you don't have knowledge yet at this stage. 
You're using your senses to study physical objects, and of course they're not real, they're contradictory, they're in flux, they can't be known, and the senses are invalid. So for all those reasons, we only have belief at this uh, particular state. Uh, the moral counterpart on this particular level would be the average man who has absorbed a certain set of rules. You shouldn't kill, <coughs> you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't tell lies, but he couldn't for the life of him say why uh, or prove that they're universal or in what context they're universal. They're just rough and ready common sense rules of thumb. Now notice your opinion or your belief, Plato uses the two synonymously, might be right and it might be wrong. But even if it's right, it's still simply an opinion, a belief. It isn't yet knowledge. Stage three, going up the line, is the stage he calls thinking. That's the point, the stage where science begins. Which means, having gone through the stimuli of the preceding stage, we now are able to turn away from the physical world, the sensible world altogether, and focus our attention on the forms. Individual, separate forms at first in this particular stage. And uh, the crucial thing we find is that every time we grasp any one form, it illuminates and makes intelligible everything that we had observed on the preceding levels. As soon as we grasp a form, that explains why the rules we had earlier simply empirically observed are true. Now this is true of every level. Every stage explains the preceding stage. And so we can illustrate this by imagining for a moment that for some fantastic reason which I can't think of, you wanted to go in for a study of the shadows of a horse, a particular physical horse's shadows, <coughs> and you had never seen the horse. You simply uh, were watching his reflections, let us say, in a pond and you decided to study them. Well, you could learn something uh, by studying the shadows. Uh, they might follow a certain progression in a certain order, and you might be able to tell that this is obviously not a banana that's involved here and so on. But you couldn't learn too much, and whatever you learned would simply be a series of brute observations. The shadows move this way and this way, but why they do, you don't know. Now, what makes it possible for you even to study the shadows? <coughs> the fact that there is a real physical horse. Now suppose you turn around and see that real horse after years spent studying the shadows, you'd say, aha, this makes sense of it all. Now I see what all these shadows were doing and why they were doing what they were doing. The higher level illuminates and explains the lower. Well, that is exactly true of the third level in relation to the second. Only on the third level you discover horseness. And when you get to it and you grasp the abstract nature of horses as such, then everything you observed about particular physical horses now falls into place and you see how it follows from the very nature of horsehood. So if you want an example of the three stages with relation to a horse, for instance, well, a, a baby would be the example of stage one. He doesn't know anything about it. He can't tell a, a physical horse from a merry-go-round horse. The second stage would be, let us say, a racing fan. Who has discovered that certain horses are good mutters and others uh, aren't? That was mutters, not mothers. And um, others aren't and so on, but he couldn't explain why at all. And therefore, it's just probability. And the third stage would be the theoretical biologist, or if you wanted the science of horses, the hippologist. 
and he would deduce from the very nature of horse all the preceding rules. Or if you wanted with regard to mechanical phenomena, the first stage would be the layman who is completely ignorant of mechanical things. The second would be, for instance, a garage mechanic who knows by a rule of thumb experience that if you smack this particular thing, the car will start, and if you pour oil in here, it won't, but he doesn't know why. And the third stage would be the theoretical physicist who can tell him the laws from which his particular empirical observations are deducible. On the moral level, the three stages would be the lowest stage, the sophist, for instance. The second stage, the average man, who may have correct but unexplained beliefs. <coughs> and the third stage, of course, the moral philosopher, who explains the reasons behind those correct beliefs. The general principle is the abstract, the universal, the general, always explains the particular, gives you the reason for the particular. Well, at this stage, in the stage of thinking or science, we are almost at the stage of certainty, but not yet. It's not yet true knowledge for the reason that I uh, mentioned at the outset. Namely, we only go to a certain point and then we come against the blank wall of the axioms of the various sciences themselves at this stage. And they are not yet validated. They are simply assumptions, so our whole structure is precarious and is not true knowledge. And thus we reach true knowledge stage four, true knowledge, where of course we grasp the pinnacle, the form of the good, and at that point we are able to reason down the whole chain and show that everything we had discovered ascending follows deductively from the form of the good. At this point, we have true understanding of the universe. We've hit the epistemological jackpot. So, there are four stages, and to each corresponds its appropriate type of object. The stage of imagining, which has as its counterpart images. The man is lost in a world of images of the baby. The stage of belief, which studies physical objects. The stage of thinking, which studies the lower forms. And the stage of knowledge, which grasps uh, the good. Each stage makes the existence of the preceding one, of the lower one, possible. And the knowledge, uh, it gives you knowledge of why and thus illuminates the lower stage. Now, these four stages were illustrated by Plato in a famous parable, or allegory, which he invented, which is a marvelous story, because it captures not just his epistemology or metaphysics, but the essence of the whole Platonic philosophy. And I don't believe any course is ever given anywhere on Plato in which this story is not told, and so I want to take five minutes to tell it to you. It's called the myth or allegory of the cave, and it is presented in the Republic. Now, imagine, for instance, that you are all in a dark, dank, gloomy, underground cave. And imagine that you have been prisoners in this cave from the time of your birth. You cannot get up and move around. You are chained at the neck and the ankles. You can only look straight ahead at the wall in front of you. Behind you, and unknown to you, there is a group of people that you've never seen. And they are carrying various objects, and behind them is a fire, 
which casts the reflection of those objects onto the wall in front of you so that you see only the moving shadows of those objects on the wall and are completely ignorant of the actual objects in the fire uh, behind you. Now you, the prisoners of the cave, would necessarily take the shadow, says Plato, as reality. You've never seen or conceived of anything else. And consequently, you would attach great importance to proficiency in shadow detection. You would, I'm here elaborating slightly to make it more modern, but the idea is Plato's. You would give out your PhDs to the man who best was able to detect the shadows. You would make them the president of the country and heap honors upon the shadow experts because after all, they're the ones that are the exponents of the ability to deal with reality as you see it. All right, now, says Plato, let us release one of these prisoners. <coughs> Now the first thing is he's very stiff, he's been sitting there for years, chained and so on, and therefore it's painful. Uh, when we take him to the back, he has to shade his eyes at first because it's awfully bright back there with this big fire. However, at a certain point his eyes become accustomed to it and he says, so this is what's really going on. I was just looking at shadows, all of us were deluded. He is amazed and we say to him, you haven't seen anything yet. Now we take him up the long sojourn to the surface of the earth and he emerges from the underground tunnel and he sees this fantastic new realm that he never even dreamed of. He is completely overwhelmed by the variety, the beauty and so on compared with the dingy dark cave. This he sees is what's really real, and the cave world is just a meaningless appendage. Of course, he can't see very well at first up here. He has to keep his eyes shaded because it's really blindingly bright. They did not have New York weather. Uh, so he has to keep his eyes down, but uh, after a while, and that's quite painful, but after a while, he grows accustomed to the light and he begins to wonder, where is it all coming from, all of this light? And he finally looks up in the sky and he sees the sun, the brilliant sun, which illumines everything, the ultimate source of energy and life. He's reached the end of his journey. Now he wants nothing but to live up there in the world of beauty and sunlight. But he feels that it's his, his duty to return to the cave simply to enlighten his fellow prisoners and free them from their delusions. So he starts back down. But he stumbles because he can't see very well now in the dark. <coughs> anyway, he makes his way back to the cave and he finds the prisoners arguing excitedly about some shadow or other. And he rushes in and he says, forget this nonsense. This is all shadows. I have seen true reality. Now again, I'm embroidering a bit, but this is the idea. And as other prisoners say to him, well, what's it like? And he says, well, I just can't tell you. It's incommunicable. You just couldn't imagine it. You'd have to see it for yourself. Well, the prisoners are skeptical, and uh, if we update the myth, they in effect give him a sanity test. They think he's crazy. And of course, since they define sanity as the ability to deal with reality, 
and thus with shadows, they measure his ability to deal with shadows, and since his eyes are not accustomed to the dark anymore, he does poorly, and he fails, and they put him to death, which is an obvious allusion to what the masses did to Socrates, you see. In other words, they are hopelessly out of touch with reality. That's the famous myth of the cave. And you see the meaning of it. The four stages, the shadows, the physical object at the back, correspond to the first two stages, imagining and belief. And uh, the ascent to the surface of the earth corresponds to the ascent to the world of forms. And the sun, of course, is the standing for the form of the good. The people caught in the cave who are doomed to believe that that is reality are the masses of mankind. The few who can escape from the cave and see the true reality are the philosophers. Needless to say, the Platonic philosophers, not the sophistic ones. What does it illustrate? Well, knowledge requires you to leave this world. To turn your intellect away from the physical, to reorient your whole soul, disposition, and interests, to leave the half-real shadow cave. If you want knowledge, it is not of this world. Another point it illustrates, the crucial and final knowledge required is to reach the form of the good. Until you know that, you cannot organize your knowledge into an understandable vision of reality. And therefore, you have no way of knowing how to live a proper life, because you don't know what is the good, what is it all for, what is the purpose of it. You can't make sense of anything without that knowledge of the good, and therefore your actions are hit and miss, chance, self-defeating, self-destructive. And notice also it is a painful process. It's difficult because, and that was the analogy in the myth of the cave, was the constant physical pain he had in adjusting to the light. It's difficult because to grasp it, you have to turn away from everything familiar, from the senses, from the physical, and achieve a vision which takes, as I mentioned, years and years of more and more abstract preparation. The result is that most men never reach it. They never learn about even the world of forms, let alone the form of the good. They spend their lives in the shadows. Now I ask you to exercise your ingenuity, if you think it takes that, and predict what are the political implications of this viewpoint. Just ask yourself if uh, the crucial knowledge needed to live is painful, difficult, incommunicable. If you require a mystical insight that only a very few will ever be able to achieve, then who is going to be qualified to tell men how to live their lives and govern their political affairs. Only those few. This is the epistemological base of Plato's politics, which we will get to later this evening. And it is the first instance of an invariable law of philosophy. Mysticism leads to dictatorship. As to people who oppose Plato, going back now to the meaning of the myth of the cave, if you were to say to Plato, well, I don't believe in your world of forms. I believe in physical objects that I can see and hear and taste and so on, and that's what I take as real, a true Platonist will say that answer gives away everything. That answer is the proof that you are one of the ignorant masses caught in the cave and that it is therefore hopeless to try to reason with you. But you don't have to worry, because the sojourner from the cave promises to come back down and give you all the guidance you need. 
now that is the essence of Plato's metaphysics and epistemology. We want now to turn to his ethics, but before we do it systematically, you can see from the myth of the cave itself the general direction or tendency that Plato's ethics will take. What will be the goal of the moral man? Obviously, to escape from the cave, to reach the higher world of beauty, truth, and sunlight. His attitude to the cave, to this world, in other words, will be disdain, dislike, yearning to get out. Now, how in actual life does a man escape from this world? His body is doomed to remain in this world. It's physical, it's part of the sensible world. Only his soul can go to the world of forms. And this it does when the man dies at death. And consequently, the ultimate goal of such an ethics is death. In other words, escape from this world, the freeing of the soul from the body, the shadows, and the imperfections. Now, you may think I am reading something into Plato, uh, implicitly criticizing him from the framework of the objectivist ethics, so I quote you a passage from the Phaedo, quote, this is Socrates speaking, representing Plato's view. Quote, Ordinary people seem not to realize that those who really apply themselves in the right way to philosophy are directly and of their own accord preparing themselves for dying and death. If this is true and they have actually been looking forward to death all their lives, it would of course be absurd to be troubled when the thing comes for which they have so long been preparing and looking forward. If a man has trained himself throughout his life to live in a state as close as possible to death, would it not be ridiculous for him to be distressed when death comes to him? It is a fact that true philosophers make dying their profession. Unquote. Now you may ask, well, why not commit suicide? And Plato's answer is the same as the Orphics before him and the Christians after him. They create this world, this other world, which they regard as magnificent, but after all, if you uh, exhort your followers to suicide, it is very difficult to have a mass movement. <laughs> so, suicide is prohibited. God giveth, God taketh away is the idea. Nevertheless, what you can do during life is free the soul as much as possible from domination of the body. In other words, live an ascetic life. Uh, <clears throat> here's a brief excerpt from the Phaedo dialogue between Socrates and uh, another philosopher. Do you think that it is right for a philosopher to concern himself with the so-called pleasures connected with food and drink? Certainly not, Socrates. What about sexual pleasures? No, not at all. And what about the other attentions that we pay to our bodies? <clears throat> Do you think that a philosopher attaches any importance to them? I mean things like providing himself with smart clothes and shoes and other bodily ornaments. Do you think that he values them or despises them, insofar as there is no real necessity for him to go in for that sort of thing? Answer, I think the true philosopher despises them. Then it is your opinion in general that a man of this kind is not concerned with the body, but keeps his attention directed as much as he can away from it and toward the soul? Answer, yes it is. So it is clear in the case of physical pleasures that the philosopher frees his soul from association with the body so far as is possible to a greater extent than other men." Unquote, etc. 
Now you know that Plato has a legion of followers on this point, stretching all the way from the early Christians to the late hippies. Uh, in their anti-materialism, right down to their <coughs> attitudes, <coughs> excuse me, to their own body and to the clothes they wear, their basic attitude is Platonism. They do not, however, apply it to sex in the way that Plato recommends. And I should say in Plato's behalf, he was much neater. <coughs> and I should point out that the hippies do it on the same metaphysical metaphysical epistemological basis Plato, from whom they got it, although they got it directly from the comic strips, but ultimately from Plato. <coughs> Namely, the idea that there is another reality which transcends this one, and that you grasp it by a mystic vision. However, they uh, represent a new modern version of mysticism in which the key to the mystic vision is not 40 years of higher mathematics, but one dose of LSD. That, however, is simply the transformation of mathematics into chemistry as the supreme key. That does not alter the philosophy involved. Now you see here there is an exact parallel which Plato explicitly draws in his epistemology and his ethics. In epistemology, the bodily senses deceive us. True knowledge comes from pure reason itself, severed from the physical. Well, just as the bodily senses deceive us in epistemology, so the bodily desires corrupt us in ethics. And true virtue is thus being anti-physical. So both knowledge and virtue require leaving the cave. In other words, leaving this world. And you see here the obvious uh, Pythagorean Orphic influence on Plato. I remind you again, Plato is a Greek, and he is not fully consistent. Certain of his dialogues are much more this-worldly, insofar as he writes qua Greek. Greek was simply too healthy a civilization to produce anything such as the aberrations which came when Christianity took over. And you will see that when the time comes <coughs> in this course. Now we want to look more systematically at Plato's ethics, having laid the overall foundations. But first I want to backtrack in time for a moment and say a few words about Socrates' views on ethics, which I promised you last week. Now, Socrates, as I said, was Plato's teacher. And he developed certain ethical views of his own, rather generalized, but still very important. And they were subsequently taken up and developed by Plato, and in a different way also by Aristotle. Now, I will not give you a full presentation of Socrates' views this evening. I'll concentrate for the most part only on those which are essentially valid, mentioning an occasional error, but not focusing on it. <coughs> Socrates was a champion, as I mentioned last week, of an absolute, objective, universal code of ethical principles. He was an arch-opponent of the sophists. He believed that ethics was a science, not a matter of feelings and impulses. Now, he never worked out a full system of ethics, but he had leads to it. <clears throat> Perhaps his most important lead was the parallel he was fond of drawing between the soul and the body. Now consider for a moment the body. It obviously has a definite nature. And there are therefore definite conditions that have to be fulfilled to keep it healthy. And there are definite <coughs> sciences whose function is to determine those conditions. There is in the Greek world gymnastics, the method of taking care of and exercising the body to keep it healthy, and medicine, the method of curing its various ailments. 
Now, there are certain options. You can do sit-ups or push-ups, for instance, or eat uh, one kind of food with so and so many vitamins or another kind which has the same number. There are options, but the principles of bodily care are mandatory and not optional. If you disobey them, you have a diseased, sick body. And of course, notice certain things may give you temporary pleasure, for instance, dope or poison. But there is nevertheless an objective basis for declaring that these things are wrong because they subvert the life of the individual. They destroy his body. <clears throat> and the result is that after a few flickers of pleasure, we have the ravaged dope addict, the alcoholic with DTs, etc. The general rule is definite physical conditions universally have to be met to achieve physical health and therefore true bodily welfare. And this requires you to tend your body scientifically to exercise reason and self-control as against acting on any whim or urge you get. Now for Socrates, and he was the first really to emphasize this, the same is true of the soul. Now by the soul we mean here, in the context of Socrates, the psychological or spiritual element in man. The soul has a definite nature, and there are definite conditions required for it to be healthy. The universal conditions deriving from the nature of the soul. In modern terms, we don't talk about an unhealthy soul, but we recognize the phenomenon he was referring to. We talk about a tortured neurotic, a psychotic, a man who is anxious, guilty, depressed, self-doubtful, torn by conflict, etc. Well, that's what Socrates would call a sick soul. And uh, you must live a certain way if you are to have a healthy soul, as proved by the fact that there are such things as sick souls. You have to live virtuously. Now you must understand what the Greeks mean by virtue. They use it simply to mean excellent performance of function. Whatever the function happens to be, if the function of a knife is to cut, then a sharp knife is a virtuous knife. It's a knife which is, has the virtue or power of being able to perform its function. A virtuous man, therefore, is a man who performs his function correctly and looks after his soul accordingly. The actual, you mustn't associate virtue as used by any of the Greeks with the meaning it came to have under Christianity. Uh, uh, virtue, the actual word that we use, is the same root as virility. And V-I-R is, of course, Latin for man. Now, it is a, as someone once pointed out, it's a fascinating commentary on the development of civilization <clears throat> that the word virtue passed from meaning a manliness in a man to chastity in a woman. Uh, that is the legacy of Christianity. In any event, ethics for Socrates is the science of achieving health in the soul. It is on the level of the soul what gymnastics and medicine is on the level of the body. And therefore, there are objective, absolute principles of ethics, just as there are in the case of the body. If you follow them, you will achieve happiness. But Socrates insists, and Plato and Aristotle agree with him, that there are therefore definite conditions imposed by human nature for the achievement of happiness. It is not, they all insist, a matter of acting on any desire you happen to have. Happiness has objective, universal conditions. Now, of course, today it's bromide, People can achieve happiness any way they choose, that it's arbitrary, uh, subjective, etc. But of course, the Greeks are right, not the sophist Greeks, but the main line from Socrates on, are right in this viewpoint. It is not true 
that the way to achieve happiness is to have any arbitrary desire and then simply satisfy. The proof of that is endless. <clears throat> Without the right uh, psychological conditions, you can have a passion for money and acquire it and end up in miserable Park Avenue neurotic. Or a passion for fame and acquire it and end up a movie star on a Beverly Hills couch in psychotherapy forever. Or a passion for love and acquire it and end up one of those uh, self-doubting neurotics who feels that he's a fraud and worthless and the love simply makes him feel worse. <coughs> Socrates is right. Misery is the consequence of a diseased or unvirtuous or unjust soul. So he, along with the Greeks in general, demand proof when you say about a man he's happy. They take that as an achievement because it means he is a completely moral man. They do not swing the term happiness the way the moderns do. And therefore, if somebody tells three jokes at a party and gets roaring drunk, they do not say he is happy. They say he is having a temporary titillation. <coughs> and they clearly distinguish there's two different Greek words, one meaning pleasure, one meaning happiness. Uh, pleasure is hedone, from which we get hedonism. And happiness is eudaimonia, which is the much broader term encompassing the whole condition of the soul. Now it follows from Socrates' view <coughs> that no man can really be harmed by anybody else. And he says this. Because in the basic sense, the crucial determinant of his soul and of his state is up to him, how he conducts himself. Nobody can make you unhappy in this fundamental sense. Now here we must distinguish, as he did, between what we can call inner and outer happiness. Uh, the external conditions, how people treat you, and your inner state. Now Socrates, for instance, as Plato, depicts him as a man of inner tranquility, peace of mind, serenity. He has a healthy soul. Now if true, other people can defame him, rob him, even kill him. But in this deep sense, they cannot get to him. They can't destroy his inner serenity. And conversely, they cannot give you happiness in any basic sense. They can give you money, fame, love, etc., but not the inner harmony or health which makes them enjoyable. Now, I should say, ideally, for the Greeks, it's nice to have both the inner and the outer. But the crucial thing is the inner, because that's what determines your whole direction. The crucial thing is to have a healthy soul. Not just life, but the good life. Never to commit injustice no matter what. Never to commit evil, because evil is like poison in a literal sense. It brings only suffering and self-destruction in its wake. That's the substance of the Socratic contribution to ethics. Now there's one more crucial Socratic point, And that is that virtue requires knowledge. in the same way that medicine or architecture or any practical art requires knowledge. It is a very common device for Socrates to draw a parallel between the various practical arts and ethics, the art of living. It requires knowledge, knowledge of the proper end and of the means to it. And thus Socrates' famous principle, virtue is knowledge. Virtue is knowledge. Now, what exactly did he mean by virtue is knowledge? As far as we can judge, he meant two quite different things. 
One of them, I would say, correct, the other, false. Both packaged deal together in this famous statement. The first is that knowledge is a necessary condition of virtue. Knowledge, of course, of what is required for the health of the soul. <clears throat> and here, this is obviously correct, and there's an exact parallel, for instance, to architecture. Uh, if you don't have any knowledge, you will not be able to build uh, sensibly. It's going to be a matter of chance, and your building, nine chances out of ten, will topple if you even get it up. Uh, the same thing for Socrates is true of the art of living. If you do not know the principles by which to live, you simply are going to have a life which collapses instead of a building. That's part point one under virtuous knowledge. Apparently, however, Socrates also believed a second point under this formula, namely that knowledge is a sufficient condition of virtue. In other words, that if you know what is right, you will automatically and necessarily do it. You have no choice about it. There is no such thing as deliberate evil, simply ignorance. Now, how did he claim to prove that knowledge is all that's required and itself guarantees virtue? Well, his argument is like this. He says, virtue, uh, rather, everyone necessarily pursues that which he thinks is going to lead to his own welfare, to his self-interest, to his own good, to his happiness. Now, I should say here an explanation of this view of his that uh, Socrates, along with most of the Greeks, assumed simply without question that, of course, all men are egoists and want to achieve their own happiness. This is wrong, but... Uh, uh, it simply is an evidence of the fact of the comparative health of the Greek culture. Now, if you combine that premise with Socrates' definition of virtue, namely that which is indispensable to a man's welfare, the conclusion follows unavoidably that everyone who knows what virtue is and sees that it leads to his welfare will necessarily pursue it and live the good life because the only alternative would be he's deliberately and willfully pursuing his own destruction. And, of course, according to the Greeks, that is impossible. Therefore, said Socrates, everyone who doesn't live the good life does not know the nature and rewards of virtue. Sin is simply ignorance. There's no such thing as a willful evil. Once you know the good, you cannot betray it. All wrongdoing is involuntary. And thus, you see, the urgent importance of studying philosophy for Socrates, it gives you the knowledge that makes you good and therefore makes you healthy and therefore makes you happy. The study of philosophy is therefore the key, the only key, to a successful life. Now I have to literally in a few sentences demur from this last element of the virtuous knowledge view, the idea that it is sufficient of itself to guarantee uh, virtue. Um, it has had a very negative, very bad effect, this latter view because the effect has been to wipe out the distinction between errors of knowledge and breaches of morality. There is no such thing as volitionally immoral behavior on this view, simply involuntary ignorance. And today, of course, there's all sorts of people exonerating or trying to exonerate all sorts of crimes on the grounds of, well, he couldn't help it, he wasn't educated, he didn't know any better. If he'd had the right knowledge, he would have been okay. You're familiar with that. Now, of all the possible criticisms you could make of this view, I'll confine myself to two very briefly. It assumes, first of all, as I mentioned, that all men are irrational egoists, 
acting always for what they believe will be their own welfare, something which is simply demonstrably false. Uh, anyone who knew the history of Christianity, which of course Socrates didn't have the chance to know, would see that. And I don't mean to pick just on Christianity, atheists are no better. Uh, and you could just look around the state of the world or read any newspaper as far as this point is concerned. To become a rational egoist is an achievement, not an innate endowment. Uh, human beings are not determined. And, of course, this would be a version of determinism, Socrates' view. They're not determined to be rational or irrational, egoistic or non-egoistic. There are men who are actually indifferent to their own personal lives and happiness. There are men, if you go by the facts, who are positively eager to destroy themselves, to sacrifice themselves. Socrates' error is to project onto human nature the general pro-reason healthy egoism of the Greek civilization. It is a noble error, but it is an error. And another criticism. The fact that you know something does not mean that you will automatically apply that knowledge. You can know that something is good for you and yet refuse to allow that knowledge to come into focus. Uh, the point I give students in school, which is the uh, perfect example of this, is you know there's going to be an exam tomorrow. You have the capacity simply to push that unpleasant fact out of your mind by an act of evasion and go out of focus. Now, you see, Socrates implies here, once you know your knowledge must always be operative. But if you understand the objectivist theory of free will, which I wouldn't here attempt to go into, essential to free will is that you not only have to know, you have to summon your knowledge and concentrate on it in a given situation by consistent acts of focusing. This is what Socrates leaves out. So he is right that when you know that something is the correct thing, and when you volitionally focus on that fact, keep it real to yourself, then in that moment you have no choice but to act on uh, what uh, you know. But it doesn't follow that whenever you commit a wrong action, uh, you didn't have the knowledge. It could very well have been the case that you had the knowledge but chose to evade it. That's inherent in free will. Uh, you can never become an automatically good person just by stuffing yourself full of enough lectures on ethics. Well, so much for Socrates' views. You see that apart from certain errors, his general view is sound if undeveloped and generalized. It's true that man has a nature. Using his terms, the soul has a nature. It's true that happiness depends on having a healthy soul, on living in accordance with your nature. That sophistic whim-worshipping is uh, a means to guaranteed misery. And it's true that a knowledge of man's nature and requirements is indispensable to virtue and happiness. But we don't yet have anything very specific. We have to know, well, what is the specific nature of man or the soul? What are its requirements? What are the laws of happiness? What is the knowledge we need? And thus we have to turn to Plato to fill in Socrates' generalized scheme and deduce a concrete set of virtues from it. And first, what then is Plato's view of the nature of man, the nature of the soul? And thus you can title this if you're taking notes, Plato's Psychology. Now that does not mean the workings of his mind. It means his theory of the nature of the soul, the nature of man. Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E, is the Greek for soul. And therefore psychology is literally theory of the soul. You can think of it as theory of the personality, theory of the spiritual, psychological component of man. 
Now, to understand Plato's psychology, you need to remember his metaphysics. There is a sharp dualism between the world of perfect forms and the world of Heracletian particulars. Now, according to Plato, man is a creature who has ties to both worlds. He is a composite creature of two parts, soul and body. His soul, or his reason, belongs to another world. It came from there. It's non-material. Its essential function is to study the forms. But in this life, the soul is encased in the body. And as a result, man has drives, urges, desires that a disembodied soul would never have. He has loves and lusts for physical things. In a word, there is a part of man which urges him up to the world of forms to study, to think, to philosophize. And there is a part which pulls him down to this world, the part influenced by the body. And therefore, there must be two parts to man's personality, or two parts to the soul, if you like to call it that, reflecting the two different worlds. Man, for Plato, is a dualistic creature. He has a higher nature and a lower nature. All men. His higher nature is his reason, or call it his mind, the thinking part, the part that studies the forms and acquires knowledge. His lower nature is the irrational element in him, and that is the emotions, the feelings. Those, says Plato, are always feelings and emotions for things in this world, for the sensible world. And notice you do not feel passions for abstract forms. Emotions and desires are inherently this worldly. They're directed to particulars. You may feel a craving lust for bananas, but nobody feels a lust for banana hood. You see. So on this point, he's right. Emotions are directed to particulars. Now, these two elements, according to Plato, are present in every man. They are fundamentally independent of each other and, in fact, opposed components, making up the essence of man's soul. Now, notice they are opposed by nature. What is the proof of that? Well, it's what you can call the argument from conflict which Plato puts forth in the Republic and which has been going like a house of fire ever since. It's perhaps best illustrated by the story of Philip and Mildred in Of Human Bondage, the supposedly illustrating the eternal conflict between man's reason and his passions. If you know that story, which I certainly don't propose to tell now except in one sentence, it amounts to he, uh, Philip is a, an artist and he meets Mildred a green-tinted slut from the gutter who, intellectually speaking, he finds repulsive. And yet, he is caught in helpless emotional bondage to her. On the other hand, he meets Nora, a nice girl, that he intellectually approves of, and he's completely indifferent to her sexually, emotionally. And he runs through the book wailing about the eternal plight of man, his emotions pull him one way and his reason the other. Now there's 10,000 such examples that the followers of Plato has, uh, have written, and I don't have to multiply them. Plato's argument is if a man like this is urged in two opposite directions at the same time, there must be two different opposite parts at work, two independent, autonomous, motivating sources, one pushing one way and one the other. 
Now you see here the influence of Plato's metaphysics. Because if you held a one-reality metaphysics, you would never come to such a conclusion. You could easily account for conflicts without taking emotions as irrational elements severed from reason and functioning independently. You would do it by reference to contradictory ideas, contradictory premises which a person holds. And you would say the person holds a contradiction, he is in intellectual conflict, and one half is usually not within his conscious awareness, but in principle, if he introspects properly, engages in self-analysis, perhaps goes to psychotherapy, he will be able to come, bring it all to the surface, get rid of the contradiction, restore harmony to his emotional life, and proceed about his business. But if you come to man in advance with the metaphysics of dualism and conflict, you will find that conflict in man also. And for Plato, therefore, in every man's soul, there is a basic conflict of reason versus emotion. And in fact, it's a little bit more complicated because Plato proceeds to subdivide the lower emotional element itself into two parts, ending up uh, with three, two plus one, you see. The lowest element of the low part, he calls the appetites. And those are the desires grossly, crudely tied to the physical world. The desires for physical things like food, shelter, wealth, money, sex. Then there is the higher part of the lower part, if you follow that. And it's more or less intermediate. He calls it the spirit-ted element, T-E-D, not the spiritual, because they're all spiritual in the sense of versus physical, but the spirit-ted, the spirited element. <clears throat> and it is, in effect, the passional, more violent part of your emotional life. The part that is a little higher than the appetites, oh, quite a bit higher than the appetites, because it's not directly tied to physical things, but it's still oriented to this world, so of course it's nothing like the high part. Uh, it's responsible essentially for intense anger, indignation, ambition, hatred, the desire for power, honor, glory. Now, if you ask why he made this latter subdivision between the appetites and the spirited, it is the same argument from conflict. He observed that a man's sexual desire can point in one direction, and a man can feel violent anger at his own sexual desire, in which case his indignation, his spirited element, is aligning itself with his reason, let us say, and both of them are against his appetite. On the other hand, the spirited can jump in the other direction. It, so to speak, holds a balance of power in the soul. And if the voice of reason says, you shouldn't have that particular desire, and the spirited element chimes in with hatred for reason and lends its weight to the uh, appetites on top of it, well, then the man is pretty much cooked, you see. So the spirited is like an intermediary part that can go either way. Now you see here the obvious influence of Pythagoras. Remember the three men at the Olympic Games, the lover of gain, uh, the lover of glory and fame, and the spectator. Well, that has now been blown up, you see, into a full-fledged theory of human psychology. Plato's own analogy, analogy is that inside the skin of every man, there are three creatures. A little man, and that represents the reason. A raging lion, and that represents the spirited. And a many-headed, slobbering, drooling beast. And that represents the appetites. Now, uh, those of you familiar with Freud will see that uh, there is a close correlation between Plato's trichotomy uh, here and Freud's 
At least the id of Freud is simply Plato's appetites put into Latin. And Plato himself took the view that the appetites contain, among their other parts, such evil desires that they come out only in dreams, that we can't face them in real life. Now, I hasten to add, in defense of Plato, that Freud is a 19th century irrationalist. And that, uh, that uh, by comparison, Plato's trichotomy is a paragon of virtue. Uh, in relation to the Freudian corruption. If you're interested to know why I say that, I'll discuss that in the question period if you want. The upshot in any event is that for Plato, there is a tripartite soul, three-part, three autonomous, separate, distinctive, independent sources of behavior, three springs of action in man, so that man is inherently, metaphysically, by nature in conflict. His parts are inherently at war with one another, that's human nature, that is not neurosis. Now it is this psychological theory that sets the problem of ethics. And the problem is in effect how to achieve peace and harmony among these parts. Health of the soul for Plato will equal in effect peaceful coexistence among the man, the lion, and the many-headed beast. Ethics is the science that's going to tell us how to do it. How? After the break. <laughs> Well, the question that we left you with was, how should you live? How will you achieve harmony of the soul and therefore happiness? Well, Plato says the answer lies in the fact that each of these three parts of the soul has a specific function, a specific job to do, a specific purpose to serve in the organism as a whole. And if we grasp the function of each, that will guide us as to how to use each properly. The function of reason is obviously to acquire knowledge of the world of forms and on the basis of this knowledge to rule the other parts of the personality and therefore to guide man's life. The spirited and the appetitive element of course are blind. They respectively simply roar and drool. It is only reason that can see the consequences of an action the conditions of a goal that can plan long range, and it must therefore be reason that is ruling. Now, when a man's reason has acquired the knowledge and is ruling his life, the man as a whole, says Plato, has the virtue of wisdom. I might mention here as background that the Greeks recognized four cardinal virtues, the conventional Greeks. You know, in the way in which today uh, in a Christian civilization, you say uh, the main virtues are faith, hope, and charity. Well, uh, in Greece, uh, the stand-ins for them, the conventional virtues, were wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. It was a better civilization. Um, well, Plato is going to show how he can accommodate these standard four according to his particular scheme. Now, the spirited element, what is its function? Well, essentially, it is the executive element of the personality. It's the part that incites you to action. Plato holds that disembodied reason itself would merely contemplate motionlessly, would never do anything. He says no man would ever act simply out of his theoretical intellectual conclusions. And therefore, in his view, the spirited or passional element is required to get a man moving, doing something on the basis of his rational conclusions. It's the thing that gives you the drive, the energy, the enthusiasm to go out into the world and fight for your values rather than merely sit back and contemplate them. 
Now, its proper function, of course, is to let itself be guided by reason. So it will act only for values sanctioned by reason and will fight in battles only approved by reason. In other words, it has to align itself on the side of reason. And if so, says Plato, the man as a whole will have the virtue of courage. Now, he calls it courage because he thinks of the spirited element as functioning most obviously in military campaigns. When a soldier is guided by reason, he will know exactly how much to endure, what to fear, and what not to fear. He won't either roar out blindly, taking foolish risks, not knowing what he's doing, or on the other hand, turn yellow and turn tail and run when he should have stood his ground. In such a case, he'll be neither foolhardy nor cowardly, he will be courageous. And thus, Plato gets the second virtue, courage. As to the appetitive element, <clears throat> it essentially performs the life-promoting functions. Essentially, it's the concern for food, sex, material, sustenance, physical goods. Now, this is the most dangerous element because there is a chronic tendency on the part of the beast to spring. There is a chronic temptation to start enjoying these pursuits as pleasures in themselves, rather than merely as a means to promoting life. And therefore, the appetites come to dominate most men. Here again, says Plato, we must be guided by their function. We must never indulge in them as ends in themselves. We must willingly submit to the rule of reason. We must to use Freudian terms, keep the lid on the id. <laughs> and if you do this, you have virtue number three, temperance. Now, temperance, as used in Greece, does not mean complete abstinence. It doesn't have the same meaning as uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. But it's a little closer to that in Plato in particular, because he's a Platonist. Now, assume that these three parts are acting properly, as I've described. Each is doing its job. We have, in effect, a psychological division of labor. Each is doing what it is suited for and not interfering with the others. And the result is we have an integrated, harmonious personality. And then, says Plato, the man as a whole has the virtue of justice. He called it justice because the Greeks tended to think of justice not as one virtue among others, but as a synonym for virtue or good behavior in general. On the other hand, injustice or evil would be a lower part of the personality gaining control, seizing the reins and growing cancerously out of all proportion. So, for instance, Plato would say that Hitler represents a cancer of the spirited element, the power luster, you see. <clears throat> or that Don Juan represents the cancer of the appetitive element. And I might say Plato would equally say that an industrialist like Henry Ford Sr. represents a cancer of the appetite of Ellen. Uh, virtue, in a word, is cancer of some part of the soul, spiritual improper growth. And therefore, Plato's final answer to the sophists is, why shouldn't you live this way, the way the sophists say? Because you are killing yourself spiritually. You are undermining your soul. You are instituting a civil war which will lead to your destruction. And here you see he has given a fuller account of Socrates' view of the health of the soul. He's now developed that view into a whole theory of what the soul is and what parts it has and therefore how it should live and he's done it by tying it to a whole overall metaphysical epistemological base. And if you now ask Plato the question with which he began the Republic, if you give a man the ring of Gyges, how should he live? 
when he can get away with murder if he wants, Plato would say, don't do it. Even if you could get away with it, it isn't worth it because you are obviously destroying yourself in the process. And notice, therefore, that Plato's answer to the sophist amounts to this. We have to turn away from the concerns of life on earth. We have to repress our passions and our appetites and concentrate on another super-reality. The choice these two schools offer you, in effect, is whim-worshipping subjectivism or otherworldly asceticism. And that is the alternative they offer. Plato does not say emotions are consequences of your premises. And if your premises are rational, your emotions will be rational and your personality stable and healthy. He says emotions are surd, irrational elements waiting to spring up and seize control. And health consists in sitting on them and not letting them get too violent. Now the effects of Plato's view of human nature, and particularly of the nature and source of emotions, are overwhelming on subsequent Western civilization. I'll run through a few of the most blatantly obvious ones, but you could give a five-hour lecture just on this point alone. All of the following views are platonic in origin. To begin with, this implies a certain type of determinism. Because you have no control over the content of your emotions, your likes, your dislikes, your feelings, your passions. They are independent of your thinking. They are thrust on you by your body. Consequently, you are helpless to change your character. If you happen to be born with strongly developed appetites, you are simply stuck with that kind of soul and there's nothing you can do. And this, for Plato, becomes the basis, as we'll see in a moment, for the division of men into three types with innately different uh, characters. Now, I should mention that Plato hints at certain points that in the other world, you had a choice about which soul you were going to be born with. You picked your soul, so to speak, at the last moment before you came back around the next time. But that doesn't do you much good in this world. The second consequence. Since the passions in general are bad, and since all men necessarily feel them to some extent, there is an Achilles heel in human nature, a fundamental weakness. Man has emotions. Therefore, the ground is prepared for the theory of original sin, for the theory that there is an inherent weakness, deficiency, evil, built into man at birth. Now, of course, in Plato, the metaphysical basis of this is the idea that anything in this world, man or banana or triangle, is imperfect and therefore and semi-real and contradictory etc and man therefore is imperfect too later of course in the theological period it was tricked up to be explained via Adam's original sin but that simply is a mythological version of Platonism third did you ever hear anybody say if you advocated to them the view that you should live entirely by reason, oh, well, how would that be possible? What about the emotional side of human nature? And if you ever heard that, that is platonic. The idea being, emotions exist, they are basically antithetical to reason, and they demand some expression. And therefore, a completely rational man would have to be a man without emotions, which is impossible. Now, I remember years ago having a conversation with the Platonist, and I was taking the view that you should always act by reason. 
And he said to me, well, this is obviously impossible. Suppose you had a girl in the car and you were driving to the top of a mountain to look at the moon. Now, if you go by reason, what would you do? Discuss astronomy with her. <laughs> now, uh, you see, this is automatic Platonism on his part. He just routinely assumed that to be rational means to have no feelings, always to be impersonal, uh, etc. Reason is the anti-feeling, the anti-emotional. Not just simply the scrupulous observance of facts without using emotions as evidence, but the actual antithesis of emotion. And that therefore reason requires the destruction of the emotions, which since it can't be done, then people can't live completely rationally. That platonic view is everywhere. Um, Four, there is the grading of careers, depending upon which part of the soul is most involved. Now, for instance, businessmen, industrialists, producers, come out as very low types of people on this view, as against philosophers or pure scientists, pure as against, you know, the uh, applied type, or pure mathematicians. Notice the word pure is a platonic legacy. They are uncorrupted, you see, by the crude physical concerns. They're off, according to this dichotomy, in their own super dimension. One of these is materialistic, appetitive, and therefore irrational. Now, of course, that's all over the place and influences every variety of intellectual. Uh, to take just a tiny example, the theory that the great American self-made capitalists are robber barons. Now, there's no evidence or documentation for such charges, but the historians who utter them and the people who accept them expect such tales to be true on philosophic grounds because they know that they are dealing by definition with a low, depraved, irrational type of man. You see, they know that from Plato. And therefore, of course, what would you expect? And therefore, you don't have to scrutinize the evidence too carefully. You just get the Ford Foundation to finance a grant and come out with a few smears, and that's it. <laughs> now, I should mention, just uh, for your own knowledge, that Plato himself did not include artists in the good side of this uh, particular career dichotomy. He had several reasons, which I won't take the time to go into. But later Platonists included artists as being the spiritual as against the material side, and they also were elevated into this higher category. Of course, only so long as they're not popular, because if they're popular and their works sell, they're commercial, and that plunges them back down again. What's next? Five? What about the attitude to money and wealth? What about the idea that the love of money is the root of all evil? Here is Plato's description of how the true philosopher lives his life. None of them, none of the true philosophers, must possess any private property beyond the barest necessaries. You see private property being materialistic. Next, no one is to have any dwelling or storehouse that is not open uh, for all to enter at will. Their food, uh, they will get in the quantities required by men of temperance and courage, and their wages fixed so that there will be just enough for the year with nothing left over. And they will have meals in common and all live together like soldiers in a camp. Gold and silver, we shall tell them, they will not need, having the divine counterparts of these metals always in their souls as a God-given possession, whose purity it is not lawful to sully by the acquisition of that mortal dross current among mankind, which has been the occasion of so many unholy deeds. 
They alone of all the citizens are forbidden to touch and handle silver or gold, or to come under the same roof with them, or wear them as ornaments, or drink from vessels made of them. This manner of life will be their salvation. That, I think, speaks for itself. What is Plato's view of sex? Well, I've alluded to it before, but I'll read you one brief passage. Another discussion, quote, is excessive pleasure, excessive pleasure now, compatible with temperance? Answer, how can it be when it unsettles the mind no less than pain? Is it compatible with virtue in general? Certainly not. It has more to do with insolence and profligacy? Yes. And is there any pleasure you can name that is greater and keener than sexual pleasure? Answer, no, nor any that is more like frenzy. Whereas love rightfully is such a passion as beauty combined with a noble and harmonious character may inspire in a temperate and cultivated mind. It must therefore be kept from all contact with licentiousness and frenzy. And where a passion of this rightful sort exists, the lover and his beloved must have nothing to do with the pleasure in question. Answer, certainly not, Socrates. It appears then that in this commonwealth we are founding, you will have a law to the effect that a lover may seek the company of his beloved. Uh, I should in interrupt to say that this is written in a discussion of homosexual love, but the principles are more broadly applicable. Uh, a lover may seek the company of his beloved and with his consent kiss and embrace him like a son with honorable intent, but must never be suspected of any further familiarity on pain of being thought, thought ill-bred and without any delicacy of feeling. Answer, I quite agree, unquote. Now, let me say a word here once we're on love, on what is platonic love. Now, you might think from the passage I just wrote you that according to Plato, the thing to do is to love your beloved soul or character, even if not his body. But that isn't true. Plato is very explicit on this. Even the soul is too tied to this world. In another dialogue of his, the Symposium, that's the famous dialogue on Platonic love, Plato gives you instruction on how true love should operate on Platonic love. And the idea is you start with loving the body. That's the lowest kind of love, loving somebody's body. Then you proceed to love his soul or hers. And then you go to the next step and you come to recognize that after all what you love in the body or the soul is its beauty and that the same beauty is common to a great many other things. The beauty of works of art, the beauty of scientific discoveries, the beauty of political laws, <laughs> the, uh, and so on. And so ultimately you see that the thing that you love is beauty as such, the form of beauty, not its particular embodiments. Platonic love, therefore, technically is the love of the form of beauty. And since the form of beauty is for all practical purposes the same as the form of the good, it's the same as love of the form of the good. It is a completely otherworldly love and as is popularly understood, the phrase platonic love is much too earthly for Plato. The idea that you should love only the soul. You see, we have another ladder, an amatory ladder. All of Plato's philosophy is a series of ladders. 
In metaphysics, we have the ladder of being, from images to the half-real physical things to the lower forms to the good. In epistemology, we have a ladder of cognition, from imagining to belief to thinking to true knowledge. In now, we have a ladder of love, from a particular body to a particular soul to a whole bunch of concrete instances of beauty wherever they may be found to the form of beauty itself. And just as the senses awaken us in us the remembrance of the forms that we had in a previous life, similarly the perception of physical beauty, which excites sexual desire, also revives in the soul the memory of the perfect beauty that it contemplated in a former existence. And once you recollect this beauty, that inspires in you a yearning for the higher life associated with the world of forms. And therefore, sexual love and the yearning for the form of beauty really derive from one basic impulse. But the trouble is, says Plato, that most men settle for the lowest, crudest, most vulgar form of its satisfaction, namely sex, or at most personal love of other individual human beings, whereas properly their love should be for the ineffable pinnacle of the world of forms, which of course later became the view that the supreme virtue is love of God. Well, I've said quite enough, I think, to give you an idea of Plato's ethics. Now let us turn in conclusion to the famous politics that he bases on it. And the first thing to note is that the three parts of the soul are not present in equal amounts in each person. Each man, says Plato, has a certain amount of each, but they're not equally developed in all men. The reason being that every person is simply an image or reflection of the form of man. And there are variations among the images as there are among any reflections. Some reflect better than others. Some are more distorted by this worldly influences, more mixed with non-being. And therefore, in those people, the lower elements will be stronger. In general, we will expect, with maybe some intermediate cases, to find three general classes of men, three general types. The men in whom reason is the dominant element, and that is the philosophers. The men in whom the spirited is the dominant element, and that is the soldiers, the warriors, the military class, and the men in whom the appetites are most developed, and that is the masses in their economic capacity. Business and, and uh, uh, labor, producers and workers. Now Plato says that the, these distinctions among men are innate, and he tells another myth, famous myth of the metals to illustrate. He says, imagine, for instance, that some men are born with gold in their souls. That's the philosophers. And some men are born with silver in their soul. That's the military. And some men are born with iron and brass in their souls. And that is the economic people, the majority. That's the way it is. There are these three types of men, innately so determined by the kind of spiritual metal that makes them up. Now notice this is not necessarily hereditary. You might be a gold soul and your children might be iron and brass. Plato does not hold that it's hereditary, but it is innate. Or con the other way around too. You could be 
uh, brass and have come from a gold or silver parent. Now the question of politics for Plato is who should rule? To which group should we give control? Should we give it to the men in the cave? To the men who are dominated by their appetites or by the spirited element? Well, obviously not. We then simply have chaos. The group that has to receive ruling power in the state is the philosophers. Because they are the only men of reason, the only ones who know the form of the good, the only ones who know what's right and how to act, the only truly just men, the only ones whose souls are healthy. All the other men are in varying degrees inherently irrational, unjust, blind, bestial. There is therefore an exact parallel for Plato between the individual soul and the state as a whole. When the lower parts dominate the individual soul, we have a rampaging sophist on a spree of self-destruction. Well, when the lower parts dominate the state, the same thing happens. And therefore, Plato is an avowed explicit opponent of democracy or of majority rule of any kind or for any purpose. His view is, just as reason has to rule in the soul, so the men of reason, the philosophers, have to rule in the state. And just as reason must have unlimited power in the soul, it must be the absolute ruler, so the philosophers must have unlimited power in the state, they must be the absolute ruler. Philosophers, in a word, must be kings absolute kings. And this, of course, is Plato's famous theory of the philosopher king. We will have harmony in our life, uh, lives on earth, says Plato, only when philosophers assume total power, platonic philosophers, of course, or else when some person who already has absolute power, some king, is converted to Platonism. That's the only choice, is the only way to have sanity on earth. And Plato actually in his own life tried to convert one such king to Platonism with conspicuous lack of results. After all, says Plato, why should we allow the masses any voice in ruling the country? Ruling is a specialized art. Think of it. The government is to have complete control over the fine arts, sciences, industries, foreign policies, you name it. Now how can we open this up to untrained, uneducated, ignorant masses? Imagine what would happen if uh, we arrived at the design of buildings in architecture by majority vote. Well, says Plato, exactly the same thing would happen if we run the state by majority vote. Virtue is knowledge. The masses don't have the virtue, don't have the knowledge, and therefore can't conduct themselves virtuously. And the other half of virtuous knowledge answers the question, but is it safe to trust philosophers with such absolute power? Oh yes, because they have absolute knowledge and therefore they cannot misuse their power. They must act correctly since knowledge guarantees virtue. So uh, it's all set. Uh, by the time you get to politics, the moral to draw is you cannot argue with any philosopher. If you have accepted his conclusions in metaphysics and epistemology, 
By the time you get to politics, he just takes you by the hand and leads you wherever he's going, and you cannot open your mouth. The moral to draw being that it is hopeless to argue politics with someone unless you first argue metaphysics and epistemology. And once you argue metaphysics and epistemology, you would be amazed that political disagreements fall into place within minutes. Now, you might object to Plato and say, well, why have rulers at all in the sense he means? He simply plunges in and says, who should rule? You might say, well, why not let each man rule his own life by his own reason and have the function of the state solely to protect the individual rights of each citizen from violation by force and fraud? Now, in part, the answer is that the concept, the very concept of inalienable individual rights uh, inherent in man qua man had not yet been discovered. That is a post-Aristotelian discovery. But there's a much more important answer. Even if it had been discovered, Plato would have rejected it. Because in his view, it is impossible for most men to live their own lives rationally. They are in the cave, dominated by their appetites. They are savage barbarians at heart. Therefore, any kind of stability is possible only if there is a strong government ruled by the elite in whom reason is the most powerful element. Now you see the progression. One, this world is unreal. True knowledge is otherworldly. That's called rational. Plato's a rationalist, you see. Two, most men are this worldly. They're incapable of a mystic vision. Conclusion, most men are incurably irrational, helpless to live by themselves. Therefore, we need an a rule by an authoritarian few who have specialized knowledge. Here, the law I mentioned earlier, mysticism leads to dictatorship. Irrationalism leads to statism. We have, therefore, a three-class society, exactly parallel to the individual soul. The philosophers Plato calls the guardians because they are the guardians of the state. And they perform all the legislative and judicial functions. And when they, per, when they are properly in charge, the state as a whole has the virtue of wisdom. The uh, military performs the executive functions. Plato calls them the auxiliaries, the assistants, you see, or helpers to the guardians. And when they properly perform their functions, the state as a whole has virtue number two, courage. And the masses of course, are the third class, the economic productive class, and their primary virtue is temperance, which in this context means obedience. And when the three classes are pro appropriately following their proper functions, the state as a whole will have the right division of labor and the right harmony, and that will therefore be the virtue of justice. Now I say again, for, out of fairness to Plato, this is not a caste society. In other words, you're not necessarily in the same class as your father. He may have been a philosopher, and you're going to have to be a worker, or vice versa, up and down the scale. And Plato has a whole series of um, tests worked out, and a whole educational program to pick out, at the appropriate age, who is really in which class and shunt him up and down the social scale accordingly. Now, if you're worried about philosophers abusing their absolute power, uh, Plato's answer is, in part, what I alluded to, virtue is knowledge. Since these philosophers know the good, 
they have lost interest in everything that could possibly tempt them to abuse their power. They don't want money, fame, anything of that sort. They want only wisdom. But, says Plato, just to make assurance doubly sure that the guardians don't misuse their power, we're going to deprive them of all private property, as we have already mentioned. And therefore, they couldn't be motivated by money because they're not allowed to have any money, and so all temptation is removed from their path. Now, suppose that we had constructed such a platonic state. Observe uh, what we have. We have, in effect, a huge human being, like a single giant organism. We have a whole entity unto itself, with all the parts of an individual human being, but blown now into huge proportions. Each of the three classes you see corresponding to the three parts, and all together functioning as one entity. This view is known as the organic theory of the state. The view that uh, the state collectively is a separate and indistinct organism, uh, and that the individual has the same relation to the state that a cell on the body has to the body. And it is therefore a particularly virulent form of collectivism. It was originated by Plato. How does it relate to his metaphysics? Well, you should be able to see that point. According to Plato, individuality is not real. All that's real is universals. And as far as men are concerned, individual men, insofar as they are individual, are unreal. What is real about them is only the thing they all are the same in, and that is madness. The appearance of a whole bunch of different men, remember, simply is in the images. They are not really, metaphysically, they are not separate autonomous individuals. We are, all of us, simply varying reflections of one entity, and we are therefore all ultimately metaphysically identical. In a word, the unit of reality and the unit of importance is the group, the state, not the individual. In metaphysics, universals are real, particulars are illusory, which means in politics, the collective is real, the individual is illusory. This is the philosophic basis of collectivism in politics. Collectivism being the view, full collectivism being the view that the group is the unit of reality and of value. And this, by the way, is one reason among dozens why the most crucial question in philosophy is the problem of universals. What is your political obligation then, according to Plato? As a citizen, what is your obligation? to recognize your identity with all other men and act accordingly. And what is the arch of vice you can uh, embody? To treat your yourself as an autonomous, self-sufficient entity living for your own happiness. You must live for the welfare of the state as a whole. Now again, I point out, as a Greek, Plato is not exclusively an altruist. He did say, that you can legitimately be concerned with your own happiness also on the side, in effect. And he did say that in his state, that will not only produce the collective happiness, but also your individual happiness. 
But those are concessions to the prevailing Greek viewpoint and not characteristic of Plato. Qua Platonist as against qua Greek, Plato is an active, ardent state worshiper, an advocate of the view that individuals should live to serve the state and should systematically sacrifice themselves and their personal happiness. I quote, excessive love of self is the greatest of all evils, unquote. What is the ideal? Well, I'm quoting now from his very last dialogue, The Laws. The ideal is, quote, that the private and individual be altogether banished from life, and that things which are by nature private, such as eyes and ears and hands, become common, unquote. What is Plato's attitude toward private property, private concerns, the kind of person who will say, this is mine, that is thine, yours, the kind of person who is so concerned to establish ownership, who owns this, whose is it? Quote from the Republic, disunion comes about when the words mine and not mine, another's and not another's are not applied to the same things throughout the community. The best ordered state will be the one in which the largest number of persons use these terms in the same sense, and which accordingly most nearly resembles a single person. When one of us hurts his finger, the whole extent of those bodily connections which are gathered up in the soul and unified is made aware and it all shares as a whole in the pain of the suffering part. And hence we say that not only the finger, but the man has a pain. The same thing is true of the pain or pleasure felt when any other part of the person suffers or is relieved. Yes, says the other speaker in this dialogue, I agree that the best organized community comes nearest to that condition. In our community then, above all others, when things go well or ill with any individual, Everyone will use that word mine in the same sense and say that all is going well or ill with him and his. People will not rend the community asunder by each applying that word mine to different things and dragging off whatever he can get for himself into a private home where he will have his separate family forming a center of exclusive joys and sorrows. Rather, people will all, so far as may be, feel together and aim at the same ends." Unquote. Now that, of course, is a formal and explicit advocacy of the exact view of man and of society that Ayn Rand dramatizes in Anthem. And that is therefore hardly an extreme projection, that is a dramatization of Plato's political ideal. And not only Plato's, of course, all collectivists thereafter. The ideal is for men to form one unit with all goods in common. And in this respect, Plato is the father of communism. And it is instructive to observe that he is the father of Western religion and the father of Western communism. And that both of those are beautifully integrated in his philosophy to form one coherent whole. Uh, a very helpful thought when you observe that the two branches of descendants today pose as warring antagonists. I should mention that Plato, however, regarded communism as the ideal, but as impractical applied to the masses. Because there 
baptized are simply too strong, they wouldn't stand for it. They have to have their own little families and private property and so on, and Plato said we may as well in effect appease them because it's useless to try to get them to live the ideal life. Nevertheless, the true philosophers live that way according to Plato. As we've seen, they have all property in common, and Plato insists they must have all wives and children in common also, which will not bother them, because as true philosophers, they're not interested in sex anyway. And uh, says Plato, this will also help to remove any conceivable temptation from their paths, because uh, there's no longer the possibility that they will be ambitious for their children. Their wives and children will be taken, uh, yes, taken away at birth. The children will be taken away at birth and uh, will be brought up and supervised, educated by the state. Plato also adds that there will be yearly mating festivals among the philosophers and that uh, although um, the lower philosophers will be told that this is taking place simply by lot, that the partner you get is simply your good or bad luck. The actual truth is that the oldest, most senior philosophers will have studied the eugenic construction of the philosophers and will mate the ones that are eugenically best to produce uh, the highest breed. And the others will just, in effect, have bad luck at the lots. Now you ask the question, well, won't the guardians, the philosophers, be unhappy living in this life, living this manner of life? And uh, Plato says in answer to that, quote, our aim in founding the commonwealth was not to make any one class specially happy, but to secure the greatest possible happiness for the community as a whole. We are not trying to secure the well-being of a select few. It is as if we were coloring a statue. You understand, in Greece, they tinted the statues. And someone came up and blamed us for not putting the most beautiful colors on the noblest parts of the figure. The eyes, for instance, he says, should be painted crimson, but we had made them black. We should think it a fair answer to say, really, you must not expect us to paint eyes so handsome as not to look like eyes at all. This applies to all the parts. The question is whether by giving each its proper color, we make the whole beautiful. So too in the present case. You must not press us to endow our guardians with a happiness that will make them anything rather than guardians." Unquote. You see, the complete collectivism of the Platonic mentality. Individuals are simply unimportant. What counts is the group. And the group is something over and above the individuals. It can be happy even if all the constituents are miserable. Madness is getting its whatever it deserves, uh, even if men are miserable. So we have a giant organism with the men of reason living communistically, ruling over the lowest class, the lower classes assisted by the spirited auxiliaries, everybody as much as possible being systematically inculcated by the desire to serve the state and obey the rulers. Which brings us to the question, what are the functions of the guardians? What areas of, this, of man's life are they to control? Everything. Uh, Plato's theory is total. And if you make an adjective of that, you get totalitarian. He modeled himself on uh, Sparta, which was completely statist and heavily admired by Plato. 
education, says Plato, must be thoroughly controlled by the state. We must have a thoroughgoing censorship of literature, music, philosophy, science. We will allow people to hear only those ideas that are good for them, as judged, of course, by the authorities, the philosophers. We will tell people lies, so-called noble lies. That is to say, lies that are for the good of the people, as and when it turns out to be necessary. In other words, we're going to engage in out-and-out -out brainwashing. And there's no objection to this because the masses' reason is simply so weak that they won't respond to arguments. And so we have to simply condition people emotionally to blind obedience. As one unsympathetic but ac uh, accurate commentator says, describing this point, quote, it is pointless, for instance, to try to explain to the masses the organic nature of the state and the corresponding need of each individual to subordinate his immediate interest to the whole, for they cannot grasp such abstract concepts. But loyalty and patriotism are attitudes of mind easily inculcated, and they serve the same purpose of producing social cohesion, self-sacrifice, obedience to command, etc. Flag-waving, patriotic music, and tales about heroic forefathers must therefore occupy a large part of the school curriculum. It is quite beside the point if the tales told the children are untrue, provided they are thus inspired to conduct which is best for the state. I can't resist interjecting, of course, the blatant parallel between this and Nazism among dozens of other movements. And the commentator continues, and if on the one hand we see to it that certain things are taught, we must be equally careful to see that other things are not taught. Since the whole basis of this education is an appeal to emotion rather than intellect, it is of vital importance that the wrong sorts of emotion and desire, fear, for instance, or greed, are not stirred, that good emotions are not associated with the wrong sorts of objects, loyalty to one's family or class, for instance, instead of loyalty to the rulers as the symbol of the state as a whole. Thus, in Plato's state, the Ministry of Propaganda and Public Enlightenment and its complement, the Ministry of Censorship, are of the first importance." Unquote. And so they are. Needless to say, all careers are to be controlled completely. Vocational tests will be given out, uh, which uh, the Board of Philosophers assigned to vocational guidance will determine your ability and assign you to the job where you best fit the state regardless of your desires. And if you say, uh, well, I object. What about my own happiness? I don't want to do this particular work. They will say, look, you're a cell of the body of society. Suppose a man had to walk through mud to reach his goal, and his foot could speak, and said to him, I don't want to get dirty. <laughs> You'd say, you're a foot. <laughs> and if necessary, you'll get dirty or get cut off. And the same applies to an individual in relation to the state. There will, of course, be economic controls. Extremes of wealth have to be controlled, said Plato. We can't have poverty and we can't have extreme wealth. In general, it's a complete totalitarianism. In the laws in particular, his last dialogue, he works out the details of totalitarianism thoroughly, with detailed laws covering everything, from the banishment of atheists 
to the uh, detailed rules of trading various types of commodity, etc. He has the whole pattern worked out in exhaustive detail. It is, by the way, not a popular dialogue among Platonists because it is simply blatantly totalitarian. They like the Republic better, which is earlier and a little woozier, but not much. <laughs> now, Plato's philosophy on this, these uh, questions have been the blueprint, has been the blueprint ever since for dictatorial, totalitarian schemes of every variety. He is the rock underlying and making possible and constantly appealed to by the medieval theocrats and the defenders of the absolute monarchies in the early modern world and the communists and the fascists and the Nazis. And therefore, I suggest that sometime or other you read The Republic, where it's clearly outlined and very easy to follow. Now it's common on the part of people who don't uh, like totalitarianism, but uh, who accept entirely the basic ethics and metaphysics of Plato, in other words, they accept the altruist collectivist viewpoint, but don't like complete totalitarianism. It's common of them immediately to say, it won't work. We shouldn't have uh, this kind of society. It would be good, but it wouldn't work. And of course, it's true, it wouldn't work. But the reason it wouldn't work is because of the ethics and the metaphysics underlying it. It's based on an anti-life, otherworldly ethics. And of course, life on Earth is impossible under such a system, and no such system will work. But you cannot combat it by simply saying it wouldn't work, not if you accept the foundations from which it comes. And I'll go you one better. You might be surprised to know that Plato was the first one who said it wouldn't work. And he even gave an explanation why it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work, he said, because after all, my whole political philosophy is theory. And what's good in theory doesn't necessarily work in practice. He originated that one, too. <laughs> and that one follows directly from his metaphysics. Because when we theorize, what are we focusing on? The world of forms. When we practice, when we act, what world are we in? This physical, imperfect, transitory, appetitive, sensory world. Well, we couldn't expect then that all our theories are going to work perfectly down here in this world. In fact, we have to expect they wouldn't work very well because of all the non-being and contradictions and imperfection in this world. And therefore, there has to be a dichotomy between theory and practice. And therefore, the people who say it's good in theory but won't work in practice are thoroughgoing Platonists, even if they never heard of universals. Now, of course, that dichotomy between theory and practice has had its own devastating effect. It's led to two kinds of men. The uh, uh, self-declared practical, who despise theory and the intellect, and uh, the self-declared theoretical, who uh, despise uh, practice and uh, the physical world and float free in their own dream dimensions of constructs. Both types sever the intellect, sever thought from life. And that is a fundamental platonic contribution. Even so, Plato says, even though my theory won't work perfectly, it's better than any alternative we have. And therefore, let's do it. I should say that he grew progressively more pessimistic about it as he grew older, but he never abandoned it. 
Now, of course, the truth is that it would not work in practice because the theory on which it's based is defective, opposed to reality. But for that, you need a different metaphysics and epistemology. Now, I want, in conclusion, to point out to you a fundamental similarity between two schools which, on the face of it, superficially seem to be the exact opposite, Plato and the Sophists, who have fought each other since from Greece till today. Observe the similarity. The subjective skeptic side says, we have no standard to resolve disputes among men. The only thing we can resort to in human relations is force. We must become tyrants in politics. The Platonic mystic says, truth is accessible only to a privileged few. The mass of men are irrational and need to be dictated to. We have to resort to force in dealing with them. We must have a politics of tyranny. The sophists say, to hell with theory. We scorn it. Let us feel and kill. Plato says, the intellect will take you only so far, and then let's have a vision and kill. Now, the friends of Plato say this is unfair. After all, they say the sophists are tyrants in the name of selfishness, whereas the Platonic philosophers dictate in the name of the unselfish welfare of the masses. One kills, if he does, for personal selfish pleasure, whereas the other kills altruistically for the happiness of society. Now, I don't propose to bargain about this question. You are dead either way. Which brings us to the final question this evening. What about the possibility of a philosophy that would provide the foundation for a third alternative? A philosophy that would say there is one objective reality, this one, that all men can know it by the use of their senses and their reason, that neither subjectivist skepticism nor otherworldly mysticism is true, and thus lay the groundwork for an ethics of man's rational happiness on earth and a politics of individualism and freedom. What about it? Was there one? Yes. And that we will do next week when we turn to Aristotle. Thank you. I have a large number of written questions and I'll try to deal with as many of them as I can. How, if at all, did Plato reconcile his opposition to democracy with Socrates' acceptance of the majority's will? A good question. I do not know of any way by which these could be, these were reconciled by Plato, uh, because uh, uh, one is the elitist authoritarian view, and the other is the view that the will of the majority is the standard. Hegel, however, found a way. And Hegel's way of reconciling the two was to say, the elite that has absolute power is the masses, and of course isn't. But uh, to do that, not no, you wouldn't misunderstand. You must not under, You wouldn't understand that. The elite isn't the masses, but it really is. But to grasp that, you have to understand that Hegel repudiated Aristotelian logic altogether and had his own type. And those who don't know it. Well, I wouldn't go into it here.
And didn't Plato even consider what would happen uh, to his ideal state if two philosopher kings disagreed? Well, of course, he would say there could be no such thing. Uh, two philosopher kings properly trained, etc., since they're all being guided by the one world of forms, will have to end up, uh, when they have the ultimate vision, with the same vision, since there's only one form of the good, and therefore there's no possibility of disagreement, he would say. Um, last week, you distinguished between what philosophy can and cannot uh, discover concerning consciousness and its relation to matter. Is it within the province of philosophy to determine the status of consciousness? That is, whether it is a separate substance or entity or a state or attribute or action of certain living entities? If this is a philosophic question, what is the answer? The only respect in which this is a philosophic question is consciousness must, in some respect, have at least one attribute of an entity. That is, it must be capable of initiating action. It must be capable of that if we are to preserve the philosophic principle of the efficacy of consciousness and its ability to direct human behavior or animal behavior. Uh, and in that one respect, it must be akin to an entity. But what its exact status is and its exact relation on anything further than that, philosophy has nothing to say. Question, how are we supposed to have grasped the universals prior to birth? By what means? Seems to be the idea that we saw the perfect man, but how do you see freedom? Well, a perfectly good question, only you make a certain concession here. You think, well, it's easy enough to see the perfect man, but remember, the perfect man is manness, and that's not physical. It doesn't have a head, it just has headness, and so on. <coughs> so, it's a perfectly good question, there's no answer to it. All that Plato's epistemology does is move the question of how you acquire knowledge of concepts back one step. You can't get them in this life, you got them in another. But then the question is, how did you get them in the other? And Plato simply says, you got them somehow. Now, this is always true of reversions to supernaturalism. The same exact principle applies to the question, where did the world come from? And people think, well, we got an answer if we say it came from God. But then, of course, the question is, where did God come from? and you're back where you start. Supernaturalism explains nothing. And therefore, Plato has commonly been criticized on the grounds that his theory does not answer the question it's designed to answer. What question? Wasn't Plato's theory of reminiscences directly opposite to empirical evidence? Well, and that depends how you interpret empirical evidence. If you simply take empirical evidence as being the obvious need of sense perception before you can rise to a knowledge of concepts, Plato would say he has accommodated that fact by virtue of the fact that we need the senses as a stimulus. Now, if you take your empirical evidence much more rigorously and define in detail what goes on, then, of course, Plato's theory is incompatible altogether with the actual facts, as Aristotle points out next week, or he already did. Please explain in more detail the parallels between the Platonic and the Freudian theories of personality and the nature of the objectivist objections to the Freudian constructions. And I had many questions on this. Well, you could give a whole lecture on that, but I'll give a minute and a half. In essence, the difference is this. They're both, of course, wrong, but there's a big difference in the nature of the errors. For Plato, the supreme element of the three is reason. 
Now, granted that he ultimately defines reason in mystical terms. Nevertheless, it's the, the mind, the thinking faculty, the part that judges and comes to conclusions and that to some extent uses logic, at least on the lower stages. Uh, for uh, Freud, reason is demoted to the middle level of the trinity. It is the, essentially the ego. It has exclusively a mediating function. Uh, between two alternatives, so far from being the ruler of the personality as in Plato, it is just a little helpless puppet shunted back and forth between the other two. So that is a profoundly more anti-rational view. And in addition, what is the nature of the third element in Freud? Plato at least has two emotional elements, both of which represent you, your emotions, and one rational element. So to that extent, there's a certain individualism about it. It's all parts of you. Freud, however, has the id, which is your, your innate uh, depraved passions, the ego, which is essentially your thinking, reasoning faculty, and the superego, which is the mores of society which you have interjected and made a part of you. In other words, for Freud, your basic conflict does not even involve reality or reason, not even mystically conceived. The conflict is not as in Plato between passion and reason, but between arbitrary passion and arbitrary society, between feeling and people with reality dropped out of the picture altogether. Now, this is an infinitely more corrupt trichotomy and could not have been formulated until the 19th century after Kant. It would have been impossible philosophically before reality was pushed out of the picture altogether by Kant. As to the nature of the objectivist objections to Freudian constructions, well, I wouldn't even know where to start. The first thing is it's all constructions. In other words, arbitrary, baseless, senseless, ungrounded, irrational dogma made up as he went along with the actual observational evidence twisted to support the most bizarre theories of Oedipus complex of the death instinct, etc. It is, of course, completely deterministic, and objectivism objects on that ground insofar as it advocates instinct, which is essential to it. It is an, a Platonist, represents the theory of innate ideas, since in fact all drives to action presuppose knowledge or awareness. Any such theory as innate motivation or innate drives means innate ideas. And therefore, those are just a, a couple of obvious things on the face of it. But I, my actual feeling with regard to Freud is what I would say if someone said to me, what is your objection to Santa Claus? And my answer to that would be, of course, Santa Claus is a much more benevolent figure, but my answer <laughs> to that would be, what is your reason in favor of him? The onus of proof is on the man who asserts that something exists. And uh, until such evidence comes up, it's a philosophic mistake to dignify it by treating it sufficiently seriously to try to refute it. I think I'll take a, a few from the floor now. If I have any. Yes? Uh, in the public, Plato says he's the master, but let him have the private property. Uh, is this contradictory to the myth of the cave? 
where it says the man who's finally seen the sun must go back down and uh, get burned by isn't Plato contradictory by allowing the masses private property and simultaneously saying that once you've seen the sun, you have to go back down no, well, to the cave? Now, you misunderstood. First of all, only philosophers see the sun. And secondly, they have to go back down and control the way the men in the cave live. But the men in the cave simply can't be expected to live fully the right way. All that the philosophers can do is, in effect, keep uh, 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 some kind of control over them and see that they don't run hog wild, you see. So you have private property for the masses in exactly the sense you do in a fascist state. That is private property in name subject to complete government control. And in that respect, Plato is the simultaneous father of fascism and communism. The guardians representing the communist element, the masses representing uh, the fascist element, you see. Yes? Yes, there is gradations of reality in the world of forms. The higher you get, the closer you get to the world of forms, the more real you are. It is. There is a continuum of reality from the lowest image on through physical things through the lower forms till you hit the jackpot. And that, of course, translated into religious language. The big form became God, the lesser forms became the angels, and you had a whole hierarchy. <coughs> and you had a whole science of the hierarchy of angels, and which were better and which were lower, and that was angelology. <laughs> and the white shirt, yes. Did Plato originate the idea of teleological explanation of philosophy? No. Uh, so far as I know, that idea was originated by Anaxagoras, the pre-Socratic on whom I touched in a few sentences, the man who said everything was little seeds, uh, and everything had little seeds of everything. He also had the idea that there was some kind of cosmic mind diffused throughout the world, motivated by a purpose of its own, and uh, that that was the ultimate explanation. And in that respect, Anaxagoras is really the father of teleology. Uh, but I didn't, that's too historical for me to have covered it in this course. Let me try a few more uh, written ones. How does Plato know that the ultimate form is the good, not the bad? <laughs> that's a good question. Well, that's a good question, to which there's no answer. The only thing you can say is this. If uh, you are going to be a universal teleologist at all, and of course I tried to indicate the reasons for it, it is infinitely healthier to be a platonic type than the opposite type. Now there is the opposite type, but again it couldn't have developed until the 19th century, and that was Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer holds that everything happens for a wicked purpose. He is what's called a metaphysical pessimist. He believes that the goal uh, of everything is to make life as miserable as possible. And that the thing to do, therefore, is collectively for human beings to sacrifice everything and hopefully extirpate the entire universe. A typically 19th century thought. Compared to that, Plato is just a benevolent life lover. Uh, do I have 
Any other questions from the floor? Someone who hasn't asked, let's try to give different people a chance. The lady on the arm. I can't hear you. Had a Plato had a check against any of his guardians for coming uh, to the uh, temptation. Uh, not the temptation. When he took all the pride rules of their property, right? Did Plato have any checks against the spirited element, uh, the military misusing its power? Well, the check has the nature of the system. A man is allowed into the spirited class, into the military class, only after a exhaustive education, drumming into him the necessity of absolute obedience to the philosophers, and b only after passing tests of character to prove that he is a silver man. That's not an answer? What did you mean? Oh, did he have any check against the uh, spirited element manifesting itself in the guardians? Only the ones I mentioned. Thorough education, complete absence of property, complete absence of private family, mystic insight. But he granted that the guardians are imperfect along with everybody else. And therefore, that was in effect the reason why he wasn't so sure it would work. But uh, he said, uh, what can you do when you deal with people? <laughs> Now I'll take a few more written ones. Do you agree with Plato's, this is a very interesting question. Do you agree with Plato's distinction between belief or opinion and knowledge? Do you have to know why in order to have knowledge or be certain? If so, wouldn't that mean that the Greeks couldn't be certain that the sun would rise or that man was mortal? Presumably, you see, because they didn't know the full scientific explanation. I'll answer that briefly. Yes, I agree with Plato's distinction between belief and knowledge, although not the platonic interpretation of that as reflecting two different dimensions. I agree that you have to know why in order to call something knowledge. You have to be able to prove that it must be so on the basis of fact. It does not, however, follow that uh, the Greeks couldn't be certain that the sun would rise or that man was mortal, because the question is, what do you take as a proof? Why do you take as an answer to the question, why? And here the crucial objectivist point is knowledge is contextual. You can be certain within the context of a certain amount of knowledge and proceed to expand your knowledge accordingly when more evidence comes in. You do not have to know the latest discoveries from biology to know that man is mortal. And you do not have to know the Newtonian theory of the heavens in order to know that the sun will rise tomorrow. Now, if you have further questions on the conditions of certainty and of the nature of an explanation, in part, I will cover them when I present Aristotle's view of explanation next week. And in part, I will say something on this subject in Lecture 12 in connection with the general subject of how can you attain certainty. Uh, do I have another oral one? At the back in the yellow, I think. Well, how 
how would the industrial-military complex rank in Plato's world? To begin with, that is an invalid concept. It does not designate anything in reality. It's a leftist slogan attempting to imply that uh, there is some kind of conspiratorial link between the business and the military uh, to take over the country and to seize control from the people. The people in this connection being those left over, those who don't work and aren't concerned with the defense of the country. Uh, and therefore, it is of course interesting that it's President Eisenhower who introduced that. It is always the Republicans who do the worst things, almost always. Uh, and uh, I therefore simply repudiate. But trying for the moment as a kind of uh, hypothetical and utterly detached thought experiment to see what Plato would say, he would say it's a big mistake. The military should be absolutely under the thumb of the philosophers, and so should the industrial class, but the two should have no links to each other. And therefore, I guess you can say Plato is the father of that idea, uh, that uh, although he didn't discuss the possibility of such a conspiracy, that took the detachment from reality of 20th century intellectuals, the post-World War II intellectuals even. You know, with each decade, it gets worse. Uh, some written questions. Are there any non-mechanistic materialists or non-materialistic mechanists? Well, let's take it one at a time. Are there any non-mechanistic materialists? Yes, the Marxists. The Marxists are dialectic materialists, not mechanistic materialists. As materialists, they agree that reality is essentially matter in motion. But as dialectic advocates, they do not believe that the laws controlling the development of matter are simply the good old-fashioned laws of Galilean mechanics and Newtonian mechanics. They believe that the laws uh, controlling the entire world are Hegel's dialectic triad. Something happens, and then the opposite, and then the two blend, which gives rise to a new opposite, and so on, and the reality waltzes to destiny. That's. <laughs> a very different type of materialism. It's not mechanistic materialism. Are there non-materialistic mechanists? I can't imagine what they would consist of. If mechanism is the view that uh, everything operates according to the laws of mechanics, I don't know what else would obey the laws of mechanics other than material things. And if everything occupies that way, presumably then everything is material. So I can't imagine it in reverse. Is mechanism valid in physics? Part of the same question. Well, if all you mean by mechanism is the denial of teleology as applied to inanimate nature, then I would say yes. In other words, objectivism does not subscribe to the idea that the inanimate world is animated by purpose. It holds that purpose is coextensive with consciousness and is therefore possible at most to the animals and, of course, primarily in the form of a conceptually directed goal to man. In this broad respect, objectivism would subscribe to mechanism in physics. Yeah, however, as soon as you become more specific than that, and you mean by mechanism Galileo's laws, or Newton's laws, or Einstein's laws, or whichever particular scientist is going to tell you what are the principles by which matter operates, that's a question for science, not for philosophy. Uh, let me take a look at some of the late written ones that came in. 
try and take the ones of general interest. Give me just a moment. If a man's reasoning part is fully dominant and he has an inactive spirit and an appetitive part, would this be called a cancer? Oh, no, that would not be called a cancer because a cancer is not simply bigness but improper bigness. And, of course, your reason can't be too big. Try to just get the ones that are of most general interest. Does Plato hold that there are no degrees of truth, only no knowledge or omniscience? Ultimately, he does hold that. Either you know everything or you know nothing. If you use knowledge in its strict sense, you either know the form of the good or you don't. If you don't, then of course you have probability, you have hypotheses, you might have whole worked out systems, but they're hanging in the air. And in that sense, you don't have true knowledge. But of course, he makes a distinction between a scientist uh, who wouldn't know the form of the good and yet have an awful lot of accumulated data about the unreal world and an awful lot of probable hypotheses about the forms versus a baby. So in that sense, he makes a cognitive distinction of sorts. The name of the last dialogue where Plato works out his totalitarian views, as I said, is the laws, L-A-W-S. I haven't time for this one, I'm sorry. Uh, do we have another? What this one amounts to is, if you have a, a basically appetite of soul, is it possible for you to succeed in, your, in converting yourself to a moral life, or are you doomed, in effect, to immorality by the nature of your soul? Now, that's a good question. And Plato, I think, would incline to answer it both yes and no. Yes, from the point of view that he does not feature the deterministic element implicit in his philosophy. He wants to suggest that men are really free and that they're responsible for what they are. But no, in the sense that he does believe you have an innate character, and as apart from the state molding you, there's nothing you can do about it. So he, like the whole of Western religion that grew out of him, has, in effect, one foot in the free will camp and one foot in the determinist camp. And you'll see that pattern repeatedly throughout religion. On the one hand, for instance, Adam had to have free will because otherwise it makes a mockery of God's uh, punishing him for his original sin. On the other hand, God is all-powerful according to Christianity and actually determined everything that happens. And therefore, he himself is the cause of Adam's sin. And therefore, of course, Adam had no choice. And Christianity juggles those two desperately with every possible device to try to make sense of it, and of course can't. Uh, I'll take another uh, oral one. Somebody that hasn't asked so far, yes. Um, when you dealt with Plato's cosmology, No, I think that's Plato's. It's, I can't remember. I, I mean, the examples might have been mine, but the idea that there is a cognitive and moral state on each level is his. Yes. Uh, didn't Socrates hold that, in that uh, if you did something wrong, you really didn't truly know everything you should know? There's some knowledge on what you Well, that's what I said. That was, that's the view that virtue is knowledge. 
that if you do something wrong, there's some knowledge you're lacking. Yes? You have the overall perspective Well, you're simply repeating what I said. Yes, Socrates held that. Yes? How does the ever know that he the ultimate form? You can't miss it. <laughs> the question, by the way, for those who didn't hear, I should remember to repeat the questions. The question was, how does a philosopher know he's seeing the ultimate form when he actually does? Well, the answer of the whole Platonic tradition is the experience you have when you get it is so overwhelming, so revolutionary, so soul-penetrating that no one could possibly be mistaken. Now, you know, the, for instance, the Hollywood movies about when you're in love, bells go off. Well, that is nothing compared to what goes off <laughs> when you hit the form of the good. Well, uh, we have time for one more question from the floor. Is there anybody near the back? Yes, I see someone way on the right there. Yes. I can't hear you. Duty seems very important in Plato because the guardians are supposed to leave their beautiful world of sunlight in order to come down to the cave. Where did the concept of duty originate? It did not originate with Plato. It is implicit in Plato because it is implicit in any ethics which advocates self-sacrifice. But to have a formal ethics which declares that right and wrong is explicitly a matter of duty means to have a formal ethics which declares that happiness is irrelevant to ethics of any kind, your happiness or anybody's happiness, and that you simply must blindly obey certain rules because they have been laid down, period. Now, Plato is not that corrupt. It is implicit, but it's contradicted by his pro-happiness Greek side. The earliest formulations in the West of something approaching a duty morality are in the post-Aristotelian Stoics, who came close to a duty morality. The more religious Christians who said that duty was a matter of allegiance to God's commandments, no matter what, but even those schools are not really duty schools in the full sense, because the Stoics said you would achieve happiness if you did your duty. And the Christians said you would achieve otherworldly happiness in heaven if you did your duty. And therefore, it is not until Kant that duty became the central ruling concept in philosophy. Kant launched an all-out polemic against happiness as such, which he considered a desplicably low state in relation to morality. Uh, uh, and it's only from that time that duty has become the central concept. In that sense, he took what was beneath the surface in Plato, the Stoics, and Christianity, and what had sometimes emerged into the surface and blew it up into a gigantic, full-fledged, explicit uh, system of morality. All right, we'll draw a line here and continue next week. Thank you. This course continues with Lecture 4.